Thank you all. And uh, as I said last, uh, last hour we were together, let me say again, it's certainly a joy to be here with you. Uh, it's an honor not only to be present, but to be able to share some thoughts from God's Word. And I knew we had a lot of students from this church. I didn't know how many. And so it's been a joy to see some of you and to certainly see some parents as well and to hear of others. And so I bring you uh, hellos and gratitude from Ozark because you guys are helping pay the bills. So thanks again for that. We're appreciative. I also mentioned last hour that uh, when I was growing up as a kid, I always felt like the guest speakers would begin with a, uh, a cheesy joke. But I told the only one I know. So if you want that, you're going to have to either have been with us last hour or, uh, or catch that later on online or something. But I do want to begin um, with a line that I said in, in my message, our first hour together. And I want to kind of unpack it, if I could, a little bit more as we begin. Here's what I said. Uh, just kind of as I was talking through things, made this statement. Long before we deny the gospel, we lose sight of it. I want to think with you about that for a moment here as we begin this hour together. Long before we deny the gospel, we lose sight of it. Do you ever wonder why people fall away from God? You've seen this before? Maybe you see somebody one day or one week or one month and they have such fire, such passion for God. And then you see them, uh, you know, a month or a week or a year, two years, ten years later, and it's just gone. And you think, what happened? Uh, Kevin mentioned that uh, my family and I spent eight years out on the West Coast I was a pastor out there at a church and had some good years of ministry there. And this last summer, I've been back now for three years. This last summer, my wife and myself and my kids, uh, we got to take a trip out there to do a bunch of ministry. We were gone for like a month and a half, two months, and saw a bunch of old friends. And it was very good. It was very encouraging to see the church doing well and to see some of our friends doing well. But I got to be honest, I won't share any stories because I don't want to violate any privacies. But there were a handful of conversations with people where we walked away going, wow. And people who I looked in the face, men I knew, some older, some younger, who were not walking with Jesus anymore. And I remember looking going, what, what happened? Like, how is it that just a couple of years ago you were so there and now you're so not? After starting with such real faith, why do people fall? Or more to the point for most of us, why do we drift? It's probably a better metaphor for what happens in the majority of our lives. And Think about drifting. And I remember moving out to the West Coast and swimming in the ocean for the first time. And this is a typical experience for people who aren't from the coast to go swim in the ocean. Is you're swimming and, you know, you put your stuff up on the, up on the sand and you, you, know, you know where it is. And you want to make sure nobody takes your stuff. And it's there. You got your towel and your whatever else you need to have. And then you go out in the water and you're swimming. And I remember the first time we were in the ocean, after probably swimming for about 20, 30 minutes, I look up and I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Somebody stole our stuff. These California. Californians, everything I heard about them is true, you know what I mean? And, uh, and, and of course, if, if you've ever been there, you know the truth. Nobody stole our stuff. We just drifted. Matter of fact, our stuff was exactly where we left it, but the current had pulled us along the way a little bit. And that can happen in life, that can happen in our faith, and I think that's probably more the question that some of us find ourselves asking. How is it that I've drifted? Why do I lose my patience at work or with the kids? I didn't used to. Why do I lose control of my pride or my eating or images or whatever it may be? Why do I sometimes care more about my team winning than my non-believing friends coming to know Jesus? What's wrong with me and how does this happen? How have I moved from where I was, which felt like it was a place where I was supposed to be, to where maybe I am, which is not exactly where I want to be today. And it's not because we wake up one morning and decide, you know what, I'm done with all the God stuff. I've decided that I'm going to walk away from this whole thing. It doesn't work that way. The process is a lot slower, and if I could use this word, a lot sneakier than that. It kind of sneaks up on us, and I think that it begins with a failure to focus. 
I think that it begins with a failure to actively remember what it is we believe and why we find the gospel so compelling, or at least at one point did. So compelling is to give our lives to it. So again, let me say, long before we deny the gospel, we lose sight of it. Long before we walk away from the truth, we stop listening to it. Long before we reject Jesus, we forget what he looks like. Long before we start drifting, we stop focusing on what this book has to say to me. I believe that the less frequently you remind yourself of the truth, the more liable you are to believe the lies that come at you from every direction every day. But thankfully, the opposite is also true. Repeating truth reinforces faith. The more consistently you feast your mind on the truth of Scripture, the stronger your faith will be. And that's, I think, what we need all the time, not just today, is to refocus, to feast our minds on the gospel, and to center ourselves once again on what we believe to be true from this book. And so this morning we've come to what, for many of us, is a pretty familiar text. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. A passage that many of us have read and grown up with, and we're looking again to see what we might find there. And that's an important beginning. That's an important first step because we recognize it's true that what we're looking for makes a difference. I heard one time about uh, this teenager who was going out to play basketball with some friends and his mom said, be careful that you're wearing the last pair of contact lenses we've got and we don't have the money for some new ones. She's like, okay, whatever, mom. And so he goes out and plays basketball for a while and sure enough, he drops and loses the contact lens. He looks at it, he looks for it for like half an hour, can't find it all, goes in and says, mom, Sorry, lost the contact lens. She says, okay. So she goes out into the driveway. She comes back in like two minutes. She's got the lens on her finger. He's like, wow, how'd you do that? She said, oh, we weren't looking for the same thing. You were looking for a small, clear plastic disc. I was looking for $150. (laughs) (laughs) I think, and I think that's true. Like what we're looking for makes a difference. And so we're looking hard at Ephesians 2 with the expectation that there is truth here that we desperately need. Truth here that we cannot live without. And if you were with us the first hour, you know that the first part of that truth that we see is grace. We are saved by grace. We, in our own sinful state, are headed for serious trouble because we have rejected God and we've fallen prey to this three-headed monster of the world, the devil, and the flesh that hold us in bondage. We're headed towards judgment. We're headed towards wrath. We're headed towards disaster. But God who was rich in mercy, acted kindly to us, and in his great love for us, saved us by grace. He intervened and pulled us out of the pit by grace. And this is the first thing that we've seen when we've looked at this text, that God is in fact thoroughly and deeply gracious. Lose sight of grace and you're toast. We, we, don't, we don't want to say another word unless grace is locked in. And if you don't believe that God is gracious to you, please ignore the rest of this sermon and just try not to be distracting to the people around you. Because until grace is locked in, nothing else I say is going to benefit, and it may actually do harm. You lose grace, like I said, and you're in trouble. But why do you think Paul so carefully imbalances this passage? You talk about grace, you're talking about most of these verses. You talk about the second part that we're dealing with right now, you're only talking about a few. Why do you think he works so desperately hard to make sure that we know there's nothing we can do to earn God's love? We've already got it. He explicitly says that we're not saved by our works. We're not saved by anything we do. It's never been a question of whether we've earned God's favor by doing enough good. That's just not how it works. He's handing us his favor right now. So in one sense, the pressure's off. Don't try to impress him because it's not going to work. Instead, rely, rest on his grace. 
You know, the one big word in this passage that I'm not unpacking a whole lot is this word faith. And essentially, it just means to accept the grace, to trust in the grace that God has given us in Jesus. So we're saved by God's grace, by counting on that grace from the start to the finish. But the second thing we see when we look at this passage is, uh, almost paradoxically, obedience. The phrase Paul uses is good works. Same thing, good works, obedience. And so with these things in mind, let's revisit our text and read it from start to finish one more time through Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is uh, the letter that Paul, the apostle, wrote to a church in Ephesus, and he intended it to be read by many others, and certainly the Spirit of God intended it to be read to us. So here's what he writes, ultimately to us, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. But like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I love the book of Ephesians. It's my favorite book because I feel like uh, it does a better job than any other book of summarizing the entire message of Scripture. And in particular, I love Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 because I think if you understand this passage and if you meditate on this passage, this short part of this little book, you are encapsulating all of what God has revealed to us about the way He works through us and in us and to us. Paul says you're saved by grace through faith. But the second part, and the part we're going to unpack presently, is that we are saved for good works. We are saved by grace, and we are saved for obedience. And God didn't just save us and then say, okay, I'm done. No, he saved us and then said, now I want you to walk along this path. We're talking about doing the right thing. We're talking about making the wise choices. We're talking about living your actual day-to-day ordinary lives in ways that please and honor God. Now, what this means in practice, in detail, is actually what the last half of Ephesians unpacks. Ephesians chapters 4 through 6, that's what it's all about. And if you're wondering, well, what are some of the specific things I should do? I encourage you, in your times of reading the Bible this week, read through Ephesians 4 through 6, and you will find plenty that, that the Spirit is saying, here's what you should do. But my point right now, my point this morning, is less about here is a list of the things you can do, and more about understanding the place of good works, understanding the role of obedience in your attempt to follow Jesus, in your attempt to do life with God. My goal today is not so much to say, here's the list, but here's how to frame up the list. Here's how to think about the fact that God tells you what to do. I think we see four critical truths about obedience in Ephesians chapter 2. And if we don't understand these, I think we'll fall into some traps that may be detrimental both to us and to those we're around. So we see four truths in this passage. 
truths that align well with all of what the rest of the Bible teaches, as well as what sound reason would suggest. And this is what I'd like to do as we spend the remainder of our time together this morning, is unpack these four critical truths about obedience. Number one, obedience is a necessary response to grace. I can't talk about grace without talking more about grace. Obedience is a necessary response to grace. Throughout Scripture, God leads with grace, and He also calls His people to obedience. So notice first He leads with grace. I'm not going to summarize the last message because most of you heard it and others of you can, but let me go ahead and come at this from another angle. He leads with grace. What that means is He makes the first move. Always. It's important for us to keep this in mind because it's easy to remember. I mean, it's easy to forget. It's easy to forget in other relationships as well. I know in my own home, uh, my wife, is, her name is Beth, as Kevin mentioned, and, and we wish she would have been able to be here with you today because we're a whole lot more fun when she's around, if I'm being honest. She's just a wonderful, wonderful woman. And uh, we like to think back to the first phases of our relationship, the time when we were coming together. And uh, we have a few debates about these things. When was our first date? Who said this first? Who did that? So we like to playfully debate some of these things. But what isn't in question, what we agree on, is who began the pursuit. It was her, of course. I'm just kidding. It was me. It was me. It all started on the very first day of class, my second semester, sophomore year, when my roommate, a boy named Nick, who's a good buddy of mine, he comes into my room and he pronounces, he declares with this voice of officiality, these five words that changed my life forever. What he said was, dude, I met your wife. (laughs) And I said, okay, you did, interesting. And he spoke of this Beth. And of course, I had to meet this Beth of whom he spoke. And so I set out to find her. And I'm serious, it was like a bad movie. Like I'd see her right as she turned around the corner. Or he'd be like, that's the girl I'm talking about. And I'd look, and then all of a sudden, she'd be gone. So it was like these mysterious forces were keeping us apart. But soon I realized that she had a regular habit of studying in the library. And she actually studied in this same place. And so I had a friend introduce me, so I'd gotten to know her. And over the course of the early parts of that semester, the, where my dorm was, I had to look out my window and I could see the library. And so I'd look out my window, and if her car was there, I'd think, well, I probably need to go to the library. And I'd go talk to her. Yeah. She calls it stalking. <laughs> I call it laying down some game. That's how the young people describe these things today. Yeah. So anyway, I would, I would pursue her long before she even knew that I existed, you know? And eventually we struck up a relationship and fell in love, but I took the initiative. I made the first move. I pursued her before she ever knew that I was even around or somebody that she might want to be with. And my point is, God did the same for you. You did not ask him to save you, and then he did it. He sent his son long before you even realized you needed him. He sent his son to die as an atoning sacrifice before we ever woke up and said, God, I'm sorry. So God always makes the first move. That's the point of grace. And anything we do is done in response to his grace. But we do respond to his grace. We do seek the one who has sought us. He does call for an obedient response. You see this in the Old Testament. If you look at the basic story of the Old Testament, God calls together a people to fix the problem of sin, and then they find themselves in slavery. Think about that moment which so shaped the mind of the Old Testament Israelites. He reached down and he delivered them from slavery. He set them free. They didn't win their own freedom. Not a chance. He won it for them. He reached down and judged Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods and put them in their place and pulled his people out all by grace. And then when they were out, he said, now, here's what I want you to do. Here's the law. 
here's my instruction, here's my guidance for a way of life. So God makes the first move in grace, and then God calls to obedience. His offer and his demand go hand in hand. He does both, and you can't separate the two. You see the same thing when you look at Jesus. Jesus comes along and says, okay, I want you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. There's the demand. But then he turns around and says, but what good, what good, what good is it if you gain the whole world and let you lose your soul? There's the offer. Or in another situation, he reverses the order. Maybe you know the story. He comes upon this woman who was caught in an act of adultery. Not the kind of situation in which you want to be found. She's caught in the act of adultery. And then Jesus essentially says, I didn't come here to condemn you, but to forgive you. There's the offer. Now go and leave your life of sin. There's the demand. Once again, the offer and the demand go hand in hand. God makes both and they don't compete. And I don't mean to be harsh, and I know we don't know each other really well, so I don't want to come off as too strong, but I think we need to be honest with ourselves and recognize that sometimes we don't act like this is the case. Let us remember together that the God who makes promises is the God who issues commands. Same God. And if you look at him and say, I'd like the promise, but I don't want the command. I'd like the offer, but no thanks on the demand. Then we shouldn't call ourselves worshipers of God. We shouldn't call ourselves followers of Jesus. We shouldn't call ourselves, quote unquote, Christians. And again, I'm not trying to be harsh. I just want to make sure that we understand that we're talking about the same God and his consistence all the way through. You see this exact same dynamic here in Ephesians chapter 2. We are saved by grace and we are saved for obedience, saved for good works. We're saved by grace and then called to live a certain way of life. Obedience is a necessary response to grace. That's the first truth I think we see in this text. Second truth I think we see in this text is obedience is rooted in God's love. It's kind of the same point, and yet I'm drawing out a very different nuance from it. So follow me along in what I'm saying here. Obedience is rooted in God's love. Yes, God loves you just the way you are. And that applies to all of you. That applies to those of you who think, yeah, that applies to somebody else. No, it applies to you. I don't care what you've been doing. I don't care what you did last night. I don't care what you did this morning. I don't care the thoughts that you've been having up to this point in our time. God loves you right now just the way you are. Every single one of us. And because he loves us, he refuses to leave us this way. What he doesn't say to us is, I love you, now do whatever you want. I mean, what real relationship works that way anyway? What husband says to his wife, hey, call me if you need me, but other than that, I'm just going to kind of keep living my life the way I always have. No. What wife says to her husband, sleep where you want most of the time, as long as you're with me on Saturdays. Not a chance. What parent says to their adopted child, welcome to the family, now you can do whatever you want because we don't have any rules. Not good ones. That's not how real love operates. No, we place demands on on one another and we make rules for each other because that's how love works. Think about this from a parenting standpoint. I've got my two kids, Carson and Claire, and both of them are lovely, but none of them, neither of them are perfect. My son Carson, I mentioned last hour, likes to hit people. So the other day I come home, it was I think a Monday, and on Mondays he hangs out with a neighbor kid named Robbie. They watch, you know, my wives kind of watch them on different days of the week, and so I say, hey buddy, uh, how was your day today? And he said, oh, it was good. I hit Robbie. Okay. Like, well, we we, we need to not hit our friends, buddy. And he was like, why? Well, because they won't want to be our friends. Why? Because people don't like being hit. Oh. (laughs) It was like this moment, you know what I mean, of learning for him. But if I said to him, hey, it's okay, just keep hitting people, how am I a good father? 
Or Claire, when she was about his age, she was probably a little bit younger. I think she was 18 months old. I'll never forget this. It was when we still lived back on the West Coast. And I was sitting in this chair in my, room, in, my, in my living room, and she was standing over kind of near the wall. And so let's imagine the chair is over here, and I'm Claire. She's standing against the wall, and there's a light socket on the wall. There's this moment in every kid's life when they realize that it'd be kind of cool to put my finger in this thing. You know what I'm saying? And she's standing there, and I watch her, and she, her back's to me, and she raises up her hand. And I said, Claire, no. And she put her hand down. And she just stood there. And then again, she started to raise up her hand, and I said, Claire. And she put her hand down again. She waits for a while. A third time, she starts to lift it. And I said, Claire, and she puts her hand down. And she turns around, and she's smiling, and she's walking to me for a big hug because she knows she's been obedient, right? You've been in that moment. We're about to celebrate. And she gets, like, this close to me. So she's probably seven feet from the wall. She gets this close to me, and she just stops, and she looks at me. She doesn't take her eyes away from my eyes. She's standing kind of like this for whatever reason with knees bent. Here's what she does. Just reaches up, you know, because we like to test it. And at the end of the day, we all recognize that a good parent makes rules for their children. Not because they don't love them, but because they do. And so when God tells you to do something, it's because it's good for you. His best is always the best for you. So if God says, no, don't touch that, that's because that thing is poison for your soul. And if God says, yes, move in this direction, that's because this direction is the best direction for you. So we see here that we haven't moved on from talking about God's love and grace. We're still talking about his love and grace. And the call to good works is the continual outworking of his love for us. Obedience is rooted in God's love. The third truth that I think we have to keep in mind if we're actually going to be successful in our attempts to follow Jesus is that obedience is made possible by Christ's victory. If Christ has not been victorious, I don't think you and I would have a chance. Unfortunately, though, here's what I believe is true. Christ has been victorious, but we still don't think we have a chance. I think much of the time we sin, not just because we want to, but because we believe we have to, because we think we have no other option. And can I say something clearly, please? If you have been told that, by another person, or by a voice in your head, that you have to sin, that you have no other option? Can I say as clearly as I can that this is a lie from the center of hell? I don't say that very often, but I think that this is a lie from the center of hell, from the death-dealing lips of Satan himself. And can I replace that with the truth of the gospel? You don't have to sin anymore. Now, I'm not saying you're going to be perfect. We know that's not the case because of our flesh. But I'm saying that when you find yourself in a situation where you are tempted to do wrong, but you don't want to do right, you can do right. And this is precisely what Paul means with the fancy seated, with the hev- seated in the heavenly realms with Christ language. One of the parts of this passage, which I've always loved, but, but one of the parts that I've never understood is this language that Paul uses when he says that not in the future, but in the present, you have been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. What do you mean, Paul? How, like, what is that? What, what are, you, are you saying I'm already in heaven because I'm not? And then as I studied this, I came to realize, no, he's obviously not saying that we're already in heaven. What he's saying, though, is that right now, you participate in the benefits of Christ's victory over sin. You have a share in the freedom of Christ's victory over sin. When the Bible talks about Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father, it's talking about the fact that he's the victorious king. He has defeated the enemy, and now he's sitting on the throne. 
And when Paul says, you've been seated with him in the heavenly realms, what Paul is saying is, even in the midst of this broken world, even in the midst of your broken self, you have a share in the freedom and the power of Christ's victory over death, over evil, over sin. No moral power or force in this world has the authority to keep you in bondage, to hold you in check. You are free. And here's where this hits real life. Here's where the rubber hits the road, so to speak. I remember I had a friend talking about um, a struggle of his. He was an overeater. Uh, This is a common problem. Many of us struggle with different things, and some of us struggle with this one. He had this issue where he would just eat, even when he wasn't hungry, when he didn't need to. When he was stressed, he would eat. When he was happy, he would eat. It was just a problem for him. And he said he he usually lost the battle uh, with overeating in his life, but there was a certain point at which his story changed. And it happened one night. He woke up in the middle of the night, probably 2 a.m., and as was his habit, if he would wake up and couldn't go back to sleep, he went downstairs, he walked into the kitchen, he opened up the refrigerator, and he fixed himself a sandwich. He wasn't hungry, it was just a habit, it was just what he did. And so he fixes himself a sandwich, not thinking much about it, because he knew if he thought about it, he'd feel guilty, and he sits the sandwich down on the table, and he gets a glass of milk to drink with it, and he comes over to the table, and he sits down, and as soon as he reaches for that sandwich, he said he stopped. And it was almost like he heard the Holy Spirit's voice whisper in his ear, you don't have to eat that. And that's the truth of the gospel. You don't have to eat that. You don't have to drink that. You don't have to look at that. You don't have to say that. You don't have to fear that. You don't have to control that. You don't have to produce You don't have to manage your reputation. You don't have to make sure that this person or that person or that corporation thinks well of you because you are free from those things. Why? Because obedience has been made possible. Your obedience has been made possible by Christ's victory in death and resurrection. I'm here not just to say obey. I'm actually here more so to say you can obey. This is an opportunity that's been made available to you. All you have to do is stand up in it. I remember one time hearing a story about a slave who, in the American history who was freed from slavery. And um, he, was, he was received his freedom. And I remember one time this, this man said to him, do you know about Abraham Lincoln? He said, no, I don't know anything about him. He said, well, thanks to him, you're free. He says, what do you mean I'm free? He says, well, you have your freedom. And he said, well, I don't know anything about that either. And that's where many of us find ourselves freed, but not really understanding how to take advantage of our freedom. Take advantage of your freedom by enjoying it and by being free from sin because your obedience is made possible by Jesus' victory. Here's the fourth thing and the last one I want to say to you today. Obedience is a restoration of your purpose. Obedience is a restoration of your purpose. When you do good works, when you obey, you are becoming the you God had all in mind when he created you. Man, I love the last verse of this section and I hope you do too. It's beautiful. It's, it's poetic. We are God's workmanship, it says. His artistic achievement. The word in the original language is actually the word poema, from which we get poem. You are His masterpiece, His work of art, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. Let me put Paul's words in normal language for us. When you obey, you are getting back to who you were always meant to be. When you obey and do good works and listen to the Spirit's leading and follow the Scriptures, you are becoming the you that God had in mind when He made you in the first place. Paul literally says, He prepared good works in advance that you might walk in them. 
the same word he used back in verse 1. You used to walk dead in your transgressions and sins. Now walk alive in the good works that he's prepared for you to do. His point is that this was the goal and meaning of your existence all along. So when you love your wife or husband or children in tangible ways, this is not weird. This is normal. When you exhibit patience and gentleness and generosity, when you give of your, te- of your financial resources immediately to other people in need or to the church that it could be used for the purposes of ministry, this is the way it was always designed to be. When you forgive people who do you wrong and love those who decide to become your enemies, this is your normal. This is why you were put here in the first place. When you share the gospel with people who haven't yet accepted the good news of Jesus, you are working with the grain of the universe. It's almost like, if we could use another metaphor to build on what Paul says, it's almost like life is a script, God's kingdom is a script, and these are the lines you were put here to speak. So speak them. Say your lines. I heard one time about a young man who had decided his last story, and I promise we'll be done. You guys are doing great. You're being great. Hanging with me. Uh, this, This young man that came to his parents one time and said, I'd like to take this class down at the local community center. And they said, well, what is it? He said, well, it's a class that kind of help you learn how to do speeches and be in dramas and these kind of things. And they're thinking to themselves, well, you talk enough as it is, but whatever, we'll let you go. And so they tell their young son, yeah, go enroll in this class. And so he does. And he goes every week for a full year to this class down at the local community center. And he's working on speeches and he's working on acting. He's working on all these different things. And at the end of the year, they had this uh, kind of production of sorts. They had this uh, rehearsal or this, this get together where they would all show some of the things they've learned. And there were speeches and there were plays and there were skits and there were sketches. And their son didn't do a whole lot. Uh, he was a king in the very last play. And he looked mighty and regal until the queen walked out and she was like a foot taller than him. But nonetheless, he was there, and he only had a couple lines. And they were the very last lines of the closing act, scene of the final act of the last play. And he got up to the point when it was his time, and he said his lines, and he was done. Curtain closes, show over. He was by no means the star of the show. But you would not have known that had you looked at his father's face, because his father was beaming. He was so excited, and he was so proud, and he was so celebrating of his son. And afterwards, out in the lobby, somebody noticed this, and they said, well, what did you think of your son's uh, performance? I said, well, I thought he said his lines, and I thought he said them well. Not too loud, not too soft, not too fast, not too slow. He said his lines. And at the end of our story, when the curtain closes and the drama ends, I don't care what the critics say. I just want to hear from my Father in heaven. He said his lines. And if I could leave you with one urge, one push, one charge from Ephesians chapter 2, as you think about the good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do, things I couldn't do, things others around you couldn't do, if I could leave you with one charge from this passage, with God's grace thoroughly resonating through your soul, here would be the words I would say. Say your lines. Not my lines, not Pastor Kevin's lines, Not your spouse's lines or your parents' lines or your children's lines. Not your neighbor's lines or the lines that you know your friends should be saying. Say your lines and say them well. And then get off the stage. So all praise and honor and glory go to the one who deserves it. The one who this whole thing is about. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen? You can clap for him. If I could, I'd like to pray a blessing over you. 
um, here uh, this morning. Father God, thank you for these uh, wonderful people in this wonderful church. When we read Scripture, and particularly I think about uh, the New Testament and the book of Acts, and we read these stories of particular congregations that stand out not because they're in the cultural centers of their world or because they're fancy or flashy or anything that the world would notice, but because they're places in your providence and sovereignty that you have decided to work through to send others throughout the world. Because there are people in these places who trust in you and love you and are faithful to you in the way they raise their children, in the way they serve their church, and the way they contribute to the kingdom. God, when I think about this church, my gratitude soars, mostly in you and also for them. And I pray, God, that you would continue what you seem to have decided to do with this particular congregation of people. I pray that you would help them to remember that in all of the ways they might contribute, whether they seem big or they seem small, that in these ways they are contributing to the movement of your gospel around this world. I pray that you continue our partnership in this ministry, and I pray today, God, that on a more immediate level, you would reveal to us, maybe directly to our minds and souls and spirits, maybe through your word, maybe through a friend, that you would reveal to us uh, what good works you would have us do this week, and you would give us the courage and the faith and the mercy and the love and the grace to walk in them. In Jesus' name, amen.